Good morning. Yep, it's the last last uh, month in conflict month, so everybody settle on down and and uh, get ready. So we know over the last few weeks, right, that conflict started from a very early time in human history, right, the very very beginning. Uh, with Satan being a key instigator in that. It's an important factor for us to take into account. And then and that was, he came in even when it was just man disobeying God. But then we see his fingerprint on when man first had conflict with himself, when Cain and his brother Abel, um, well, when Cain decided to murder Abel because of his own selfish, demonic wisdom that he was applying there. And all of those things have a, a component of demonic wisdom, right? We learned that when we see those different things, when we see selfishness and divisive uh, goals, divisive nature with that, when we see jealousy, when we see bitterness, and when we see envy and people being uncontrolled and how they're behaving and, and trying to be as people, and then obviously when we see the fruit of those things, when we see sin following from from anything. We know that those things are from a demonic nature, that they're not from God, especially in how we see things going with conflict. And uh, we respond to that instead with submission to God, right? We talked about being in submission to God on week three, I believe. I think that was just last week, where we're submissive to God's character, to the fruit of the Spirit, right? To love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, uh, goodness and self-control We are submissive to God's word We learn how to wield with a steady hand the sword of the spirit Which is the word of God in that We learn how to put on the whole armor of God As we're engaging in conflict And addressing the spiritual nature of those things So that we know that we're protected And can behave appropriately as God's people We engage in conflict in this way As Jesus's Disciples, that's who we are and we're equipping ourselves with what God has given us We're continually seeking to be more like God as we're going about these things as we run into conflicts as we are forced to Start conflicts of our own to resolve things And as such as we continue to seek being like God we should understand that even in these conflict situations that God doesn't need anything, right? In Acts 17, verse 24, he says, He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands cannot serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. This is from Paul, who spent his whole life as a devout Jew offering sacrifices and all those things But in Christ in his relationship with God who he's come to know very very intimately He understands that God is not a God who needs Sacrifices when we're in conflict with him, right? and so as we go and we're emulating who God is we understand that Since God doesn't need anything from conflict. We also don't need anything in our conflicts, right? To bring our conflict back into 
good standing, um, we understand that we are not reliant on another person to serve our needs, right? It's our God who serves our needs. And so it's important that when we're getting into a conflict, when we're starting to figure out deeper and deeper how to understand how to be godly in our conflicts, that we're not depending on those things. And to phrase it differently, we're not dependent on a needed result or a particular thing from a person, right? We're striving to be in relationship with a person and bring both of us back into good standing with each other, good standing with God. But it's not one certain thing that you're, that you're fighting over. We're to be flexible in that. And when we, when we need something out of an interaction or whatever, one particular thing that we're holding on to, we're sort of cornering ourselves like a cornered animal. And you start fighting for, for whatever it is at all costs. When you lift this one thing onto a pedestal, instead of a relationship with God and understanding that that needs to have a whole bunch of certain qualities, and yes, those qualities transfer down into our relationship, and we need to hold each other accountable to you know, what it looks like um, to be in relationship, a godly relationship with each other. But when a person says, you know... I need you, like, I need to be able to go out on a date every Tuesday night, in my case, you know? And if I were to fight, if I were to fight for that tooth and nail, that relationship, that conflict would quickly become unproductive. But what God does is he takes a situation where there's a conflict, and he figures out what it is that people can handle so that the relationship with that meets his character in a way that is pliable like he spent the entirety of history changing slowly changing the way that he deals with mankind to bring us to a point where he could put the nail in the coffin and deal with sin for good in its entirety and he did that in an incredibly flexible way in a whole bunch of different ways across time and so we can't be rigid in how we're doing things we need to have a flexible mindset in how we're dealing with with conflict of this But in not being rigid and not being like a cornered animal and fighting for that one thing, you know, being flexible and willing to discuss things and willing to figure it out and, and really focus on emulating who God is and his character and not fighting for that one thing that's in our narrow, you know, rigid mind of what is the right thing to do, but figuring out other options for that. In that... We're talking about having intent and direction in everything that we do in conflict. This is how God operates, and that's how we should operate. God uses evil for good, and so shall we. You know, He takes conflicts and uses that into something that the world can see, the world can learn from, that the people that are in that conflict can grow out of and be more like they're designed to be. In conflict, we need to do more than not violate, God, not violate God's requirements like we've talked about. Do more than not sin. Do more than just reflect his character in ourselves, but make sure that we're driven with intent and direction and purpose for God's legacy in that, in being flexible to bring everyone to God. So we need to address conflicts and drive conflict in a way which brings glory to God in a way which strengthens and unifies the body, too. 
we need to bring God directly into our conflicts. I think that's one of the most straightforward and obvious ways that we can glorify God in our conflicts, right? That we can lift him up and show that he's the solution to those things. And I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, how often that is an obvious solution when you're, like, you know, picking at the details of things to directly bring God into things. But it's a great way to do it. What better way to glorify God than to bring him into the conflict himself? It gives respect to his authority. It gives respect to his wisdom. And in submitting to him in that, it gives us all sorts of solutions. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, when Peter, but when Peter came to Antioch, this is Paul speaking, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, Since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners, quote-unquote, like the Gentiles. Yet, we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law, and we have believed in Jesus Christ so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. So, Peter was being, you know, rude and hypocritical with this group of, of believers, of Gentile believers. And both of those complaints are valid in and of themselves, right? Being rude and being hypocritical. But Paul decided to take it to God in that, to bring God directly into that conversation. Talk about Christ. Use basic theology in dealing with that situation. What moved Paul to conflict with Peter, even in front of people? Well, I would submit to you that it's his protection of the body of Christ, his preservation of the pure church, you know? Something was at stake there, and he had to address it. He brought God into that equation with his wisdom, with his authority. He didn't just deal with Peter being rude. didn't just deal with Peter with... Um, not having a right relationship and sort of turning his back on his friends or whatever, which people in and of itself would be like, that's wrong, we need to fight for this, you know. You can't be that. You can't be rude and two-faced and like whatever. But Paul was specific to bring God into it in front of everybody to preserve the purity of the church in that. He was using conflict in order to strengthen the body. In Acts chapter 15, verse 4, Luke writes, When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the, some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted, The Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So the elders and apostles met together to resolve the issue. 
At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. We'll pause there for a second. So they were having this conflict sort of on the same topic, actually. It was a popular topic of the early church. But they met for a long discussion. They decided that it was something that was worthy of discussion, right? They not just to sit there in the moment, but they had the luxury of taking everybody together and meeting for a long discussion to resolve this this conflict that was happening even in public. So we see both things happening. And they talked at length for how to resolve and strengthen the body during that. It was thought out. They made sure that everybody was on the same page. This is how the early church did things. And continuing into the church fathers, right, that we see over, you know, decades and centuries even, the church fathers writing back and forth, trying to be on the same page of how to resolve these conflicts of ideas about how people should live. And that's what we're to do continuing in our relationships today, to follow their examples of the apostles of scripture, of the early church fathers. Being prepared to have a long discussion for that, or being prepared to stand up and fight for the purity of the church, not just talking about things in the basic human nature of things, fighting for, you know, not backstabbing somebody or treating a person with kindness, but bringing Christ into things and really directly using God's authority and giving him glory in that. It continues, Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. <clears throat> so why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we, all save, we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. So they then, after their long discussion, they gave him a solution that the people could handle, right? The, something that was attainable, something that was tailored to where they were at at that time that brought them closer to God, that allowed them growth. A solution from God approved by him. And I'll point out that, like last week, we talked about using the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, the scripture. In this passage, it goes on to cite scriptures from the Old Testament to support this type of thing in their conversation, in their discussion and conflict, and seeing what the resolution was, and then being able to put a stamp on it and transfer it. In conflict, um, talking about addressing people in public and all sorts of different things like we see in scripture but are not necessarily comfortable with in our society as far as putting a stamp of approval on how to be in conflict. But within the freedom of Christ, we see even Jesus using controversial means to strengthen the body through conflict, right? He gets all sorts of creative in all sorts of different circumstances. But <clears throat> just to name a couple, for example, in talking about not holding on to one thing that in our mind we have to, to solve a conflict with, but being flexible enough to have an open mind, to understand that it's about bringing people back to the, the character of God and we need to be creative and ingenuitive and be ready to present things in a certain way <clears throat> so that we can glorify God and strengthen the body in that. 
we see Jesus doing things like comparing people to other people, even in public, you know? We see, like, his apostles fighting amongst themselves, and he compares them to a child and says, you adults need to be more like this child if you're going to enter the kingdom of God. He compares one sister to another when Mary and Martha are doing their thing. I'll read a scripture from that. Luke 10, verse 38. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed, her, welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what was taught, but Martha was distracted by the big dinner that she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. That's pretty insulting from the standpoint of that sister. That he says, you know, your sister who you think is being lazy is actually doing what I appreciate her to be doing. Why are you so worried about all these things? And it's not like she was doing something bad, right? She was doing something good and productive, and she was trying to prepare dinner for everybody. But in that conflict, in that moment where somebody says something's wrong here, Christ steps in and says, look at your sister. I appreciate this more. We see another example of comparison with the story of the widow's mite, right? Where we, everybody's lined up at the temple giving their donations and everybody's paying, you know, a tenth of their income and being good Jewish uh, followers and all this stuff. And Christ points out that the widow is doing far more than any of them when she gives her two little coins that are worth like one sixty-fourth of a day's wage or something, you know, ridiculously small like that. But she gave everything that she owned, and it was about the heart of that. And he used that situation to compare two people and say, this woman is better than the rest of these people. You should be like her. He also uses things like current and tragic events, talking about using our surroundings to address a discrepancy between people, to, if you want to call it this, initiate a conflict with somebody, to strengthen the body as your goal. In Luke chapter 13, he says, About this time Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered Pontius Pilate, the governor of the area, in, in Jesus' time there that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Do you think the, those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee, Jesus asked? Is that why they suffered? Not at all, and you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. What about the 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. And I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. He's using all these things in the environment to teach people to strengthen the body, even if those things are controversial and something that people might be offended at or be conflicted with. But it's not about that. It's about giving glory to God and strengthening the body and doing it within the character of God. And you notice that, you know, 
when Jesus dies or whatever, even before he's resurrected and seen, you don't see the apostles being like, "Woo, good thing that groove harsher is gone. Like, man, he really was laying it on us for those last three years, like telling us all these things and rebuking us left and right. They don't see that because even though Christ presented these truths, his love prevailed through and above all those things. So we see that type of story. We even see physical action and force being presented with Christ, something that is really hard to envision as being appropriate in terms of a way to conflict with people and a, a way um, to be godly in our interactions. But we see that Christ lives outside that box, that even for him, he finds a situation where that's appropriate. And that's when he's correcting the greedy businessmen that are operating in the temple, right? And buying and selling, um, trading money and making money off of temple sacrifices and all this stuff. And he goes home, fashions a whip, and comes back the next day and drives out the business people with his big fat whip that he, that he goes in there with and drives people out and flips over their table and spills all their money out and says, get out. He says, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. He dealt with that conflict very controversially. But it was to strengthen and protect the purity of the church, the purity of God's people in that. And so we have to figure out how that fits into our lives, how those types of things can work within the character of God and not be boxed into our little boxes. So we understand now that many things can be done in times of conflict, right? If we're careful to have the correct mindset and intent in strengthening the body. We need to be, through all these processes, we need to be watching out for reconciliation, right? We're supposed to be trying to be people of reconciliation, ministers of reconciliation, Conflict always requires reconciliation, right? Whether you start it or somebody else starts it or it just so happens that there is a conflict, nobody really starts it. But that's sort of the definition of conflict is there's a separation of ideas, a separation of actions or whatever. And so the body of Christ needing to be in harmony always requires that we be on the lookout for reconciliation as we encounter these situations, for unity in the body. In Jude, verse 22 says, and you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution and hating the sins that contaminate their lives. It's strong language. It's conflicting language, you know? But it is holding those two things in balance, looking for that reconciliation, being merciful while hating the actions of someone. That's definitely conflict. If you, I mean, if you're being really honest and you hate what somebody's doing, but you don't have any mercy for them, you'll either stomp them or just leave. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to hang in there, which requires us to have mercy and to have a disagreement at the same time so that we have that growth and have that conflict and be able to come together in harmony and understanding how those things either become the same thing or mesh together in a way that works together, right? 
in Matthew chapter 18, uh, verse 15, if you have a classic conflict, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. And if the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then, if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. If you notice, from start to finish on that, <laughs> that's funny, start to finish on that, it's about retrieving the sheep. The, it's about reconciliation. It's about bringing that person back. Later on, if you want to see the, the finish of that or whatever, um, in Matthew 18, uh, verse 35, we see that Jesus says that we are evil ser servants if we don't forgive from the heart. So in that process, we see, you know, go with one person and try to reconcile with them. Go with a couple more people who are like trusted believers that um, can come with you and support that interaction and give uh, authority and a, a cohesive position of the larger body and talking about, you know, discussion like we saw before with the apostles and so on and so forth so that you can try to bring that person back into right standing with you and with God. And then at the end, if nothing works, then you have to treat that person as not a part of the body anymore, as a last resort. But it's in the hope, as we see in 2 Corinthians, it's in the hope that that person repent and come back. It's in the hope that that will have enough of an impact that they come back. And that's where the forgiveness comes in later on in chapter 18 in Matthew, that where if we don't forgive from the heart these people that have sinned against us, then we are evil servants ourselves. But talking about 2 Corinthians, we'll check that out in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 5. I'm not overstating it, Paul says, when I say that the man who caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Most of you opposed him, and that was punishment enough. Now, however, it's time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. So that's the whole scenario played out from start to finish, is, you know, you make this effort, and then you make that effort. You tweak your approaches to things to try to bring people back to God, to be ministers of reconciliation in that way, to strengthen the body, to not just do what, not just do what you are supposed to do, be the, the character that you're supposed to be in conflict, and not violate God in that, but actively trying to contribute to the body as a whole. And even if you have to go as far as we have the authority to go and kick a person out of the body because they refuse to be a part of it in the way that God requires of them, still be willing to bring them back in in such a way. That reconciliation is love-centered. It's not something that you see out in the world, you know? Burnt bridges out in the world are burned forever, but we don't have burnt bridges as disciples of Christ. We don't have burnt bridges just like God doesn't have burnt bridges, just as God never had a burnt bridge with Israel. He was always looking for them to come back to them, even when he kicked them out and had 
you know, Babylon conquer them or the Persians conquer them or whatever. Always looking for reconciliation, always had a love for them. In 1 Corinthians 8, Yeah, reconciliation is love-centered. So, this is going to tie back into that. In 1 Corinthians 8, we see that Paul says, yes, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue, being the food offered to idols issue where, brief summary, let's see, food offered to idols issue, where certain believers that were Christians um, didn't want to eat the food offered in, that were, had been used to sacrifice to idols, um, because it had been sacrificed to idols. But in our freedom of Christ, we understand that that's just food and those idols are just pieces of wood or whatever. And so we have the freedom to do that when we are not being loyal to those idols. But people are taking issues with that, and so there was a conflict there. <clears throat> but anyway, um, Paul's talking about this when he says, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue, the food offered to idols things and the conflict between that. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. So we see that position once again that you don't necessarily know the one thing that a relationship needs to be fixed, but it's worth a discussion. It's worth looking and discussing with all people so that you find creative and ingenuitive solutions to bring back people into right relationship with us, into right relationship with God that still holds to God's standards but is not necessarily in our rigid box, being willing to have that long discussion about that. And the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes in that. That's where that love comes from is we love God enough to be able to be in that struggle. And Paul as he's speaking here, he's the first one to be justified in touting his knowledge, right? He's proven his knowledge over and over, and it's been really successful in his ministry over the last, you know, 13 books in the Bible that he's written. Like, just tons of knowledge in this guy and trained up from a young child in it. But in his expertise, he says that knowledge can divide people, right? It's not necessarily productive. Each person has their own level of understanding, which we're all called to grow in, and that's all well and good. That's where the discussion comes in, too. But there will always be differences and gaps and divisions in that knowledge. But we need to allow love to fill these gaps and strengthen the church in that, in, in figuring out how to hold that balance of having those discussions about looking for a harmony and a unity in that. But in the meantime, while we're having this drawn out conflict or whatever it needs to be for love to fill those gaps and strengthen the church we can do the best with the knowledge that we have but we always have to reserve the certainty that we don't have all the pieces of the puzzle right we need to appeal to god for that wisdom we need to search the scripture for wisdom in that we need to search other believers and collaborate and see if we can pour over that and have a discussion and figure out what's the best thing to do like earlier when the Jewish believers were talking and requiring that the Gentile believers were going to adhere to all the law and all this stuff. 
they had a big fat discussion and they came up with just a few requirements that they thought were integral to the health of the relationship of those new believers with God. You know, they didn't pick the whole law as the Jewish law had required and that Christ fulfilled so that we didn't have to be chained to it. But they searched those things and they found that those things were wise before God to ask the Gentile believers to do. And that's sort of what we see going on right here with Paul. So anybody who claims to know it all really doesn't know very much, according to Paul. God values the heart, and that is also what brings strength and unity. In that, it enables us to have discussion, enables us to find the truth of all these things, to search the scripture for God's wisdom. But we can't do that without the love to fill those gaps. So we should have discussions like we saw earlier, but the glue in holding us together during those discussions is the love. We can't forget the glue. It's like building a piece of Ikea furniture. It only survives so many moves, you know? You gotta super glue that sucker. And that's how we need to do it. Especially when we need to fix things, right? When something is broken, when we have your traditional conflict where two people wrong each other in some way and that relationship is broken. Like it needs that glue of love to strengthen and fix that relationship between God and between those two people. Loving God above all those things, because loving God is where we get our strength to love each other like we should. And that's why, for example, in conflicts, we see in Scripture that we're never to use a secular court, right, to decide anything. It's, it's that last-ditch option. If we have a, if we have a conflict among, among believers, we're never to go to an outside authority. Scripture gives clear guidance on that. It's like divorce or like abortion to people, I guess, where it's like people think of it as a last-ditch option in the world. You know, we understand that those things aren't good and they're not right, but when you hold on to that one thing that's important to you and you're not willing to break from it, you're not willing to have that discussion secured by the glue of love and willing to draw that out and figure out other ways that you can come to God and have godly compromise between people, between our needs, and so on and so forth. Um, that's what the world views those things as, going to court, having divorce, getting an abortion, like those types of drastic measures. But according to God, those aren't legit options, you know? Those options aren't really right before him. It's a last resort when people are cornered like animals, like we talked about before. But we are certainly not animals. We are a prime creation in God's image. So, we're not to be that through any means. Um, we're supposed to be under God's teaching and within God's body, behaving appropriately. Uh, yeah, just thought I'd touch on that court situation. But each of us are to be ministers of reconciliation instead, not to rely on an outside court situation, but be committed to resolving things internally and not give up. God's glue does not come undone. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, we see this. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, 
we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, and how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life has gone, and a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. It's an illustration of how we're supposed to be in conflict, seeking reconciliation with each other and with other people. Looking at that bigger picture and strengthening the body. Unresolved conflict isn't just a missed opportunity, but it's a breeding ground for evil, like we talked about early in the month. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, we see, And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. This type of anger isn't present. This type of anger that gives a foothold to the devil isn't present in godly conflict that is glued together by love and willing to have a discussion, albeit a heated discussion even, you know? You can look... I think it was just talked about recently, but, and I remember having this specific moment myself, but I remember watching Josh and Pastor Monty just go at it at each other, you know, having some conflict and theological discussion, and they're just like, you know, arguing back and forth vehemently and loudly and powerfully and persuasively and all this stuff. And at the end of it, there's no animosity in that because. God's love is in that conversation, in seeking the truth of that, in collaborating together and searching scripture with each other and what each other knows, you know? And there's a certain character to that relationship when you come out of the cloud of smoke of the wrestling match, you know? And uh, it's just, you don't, you know, you don't see that, that type of unity immediately emerge from a conversation like that without the presence of of Christ in both of those people and within that relationship. Um, so yeah, these are good examples for us to look at. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You've heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, even if you're angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in the danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in the danger of the fires of hell. So if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. What we see here is not just the, the rejection of of a continuing anger, you know, in a relationship, not a, just a rejection of a certain character to an interaction, but we see an urgency that's required of us, right, to resolve those things. God says, I don't want you to come talk to daddy 
before you resolve, before you have a good attempt at resolving what's going on between you, brother and sister, or brother and brother. You know, don't come to daddy until you've tried to work it out with yourselves. And we have measures that we saw earlier when one person refuses to work it out, you know, but God says, before you offer a sacrifice to me, before you try to get right with me, you need to get right with the people that you know you're not right with. And there's an urgency to that. All of scripture is full of addressing conflicts and disunity, right? False teachings and correction of this person and that person and this group of people and that group of people. Trying to reconcile everybody to God's standard. And we should prepare our hearts to do this and do it in the right spirit with specific purpose Bringing God into the issue directly, not just talking about, you know, what's good for that person and what's good for that person and, you know, what I need and what you need and keeping it to a correct but essentially secular conversation that you could interchange with anybody else in the world based on, you know, principles of basic human rights that we all sort of agree on in this country and continent or whatever. But bringing God directly into the issue, trying to strengthen the body with each action and conflict that we choose to engage in through all sorts of creative means, but having the intent and the purpose of strengthening the body. We need to be reconciling and resolving our conflicts in a way that doesn't leave room for anger, but's glued together with love. In the context of conflict, I want to check out the Beatitudes from Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Just listen to this and sort of think of these things in the context of conflict. Verse 3 of chapter 5. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. And God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. These are universal principles from the mouth of God. And we need to live by those things, especially in conflict. So let's discuss some stuff. Do you bring God directly into the conflicts that you experience? We're talking with believers here. We talked about last week, like having those scriptures in your mind and being able to apply that in your conversation, which still applies here. But do you bring God directly into your conversations during conflicts with people, through discussion, or even through prayer, you know? In the middle of a conflict, you guys can't figure it out, hey, maybe we should pray together. That is something that honors God greatly. When a conflict is initiated with you, do you look for the intent and purpose in it? You know, flipping the script here, flipping it to the opposite perspective, not us being the conflictors or, you know, seeing something that's going wrong and, and trying to call that out and bring correction and strength to the body. But when somebody's doing that to you, 
do you look for the intent and the purpose behind what that person is saying, even if it's, you know, it feels harsh to you because it's hitting a nerve. It's something that you're insecure about because deep down you probably know that it's not right how you're behaving or whatever. Do you look for the intent and purpose in other people addressing you? How specific are your goals when you engage in conflict? Do you think of a particular way in which you want to build up the body and in which you want to strengthen another person? You know, are you targeted in that? I always think, always think of that movie, The Patriot, with Mel Gibson and the Redcoats or whatever come to his house and they're like, I think they're destroying his house or something. It's been a long time since I've seen it. But him and the boys like run off into the woods. Oh yeah, they kidnap his like the oldest brother or something. They run off into the woods and he's got the kids positioned along the ravine. These, you know, little like six, eight-year-old kids and he gives them muskets. You know, it's like Civil War, not Civil War, Revolutionary War times. And he tells them the advice so that they are successful in, in shooting this British um, whatever, caravan that took their oldest brother hostage, he tells these little kids, aim small, miss small. It's like this, it's this mantra that he has for them. And I think it is super relevant and applies to this. Like if you have a specific goal, you are far likely to, more likely to succeed, in this case, in strengthening that person, in strengthening the body, than in a general idea of, I don't like what's going on here. I need to call this out, you know? But if you're like, the body could really grow in this, and God wants this, and this is what I want, what I want to instill in this person, that's far stronger. How specific are your goals when you engage in conflict? Do you have a specific goal, or do you have a general idea? When you see conflict, how are you a minister of reconciliation? When you see conflict, how are you a minister of reconciliation? Or do you say, it's not my problem too easily, if you're not, you know, really affected by it? Are you looking to strengthen the body, or are you looking to avoid conflicts and say, not my problem, that other person can deal with it? Because we know that there's creative solutions to building up the body of Christ, right? Maybe it isn't your problem. Maybe it's somebody else's problem, and maybe you feel convicted that you're not to participate in other people's business or whatever. But maybe that means stepping in and telling that other person, hey, what do you think about this? Something's not right here, right? Maybe you should do something about that. Maybe you should think about this. Maybe you should talk to that person. A minister of reconciliation, bringing people together. Let's talk about those things.